The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. Take a look at David this morning. You know, last week we were, last time we spoke, we left David uh, having just defeated Goliath, and uh, he was obviously quite the hero. And yet, David really wasn't ready yet to be king. You remember, he was anointed king by Samuel the prophet in our first study because God was so disappointed in Saul's behavior and what God was and what he was doing with his life and how evil he had become. And so David comes along and he obviously slays Goliath. And of course, David's fame was quite readily accepted amongst all the people of Israel. And so Saul was quite inquisitive about him and wanted David to be more a part of his court and his leadership. And yet David still wasn't ready to be a king because there was a lot he needed to learn. And there's a lot that we can learn from David's experience in our own lives when it comes to being a leader. And so I'd like to read for you a couple of quotes that I picked up by Jack Welch, who was number one. Jack Welch, a very famous CEO, said this, Before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, it's about growing others. And Martin Luther King Jr. said this, and I think it's very, very powerful. It says, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in comfort, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. David was about to have the challenge of controversy in his own life. Up to this point, he had been very successful. He was still a young man, probably still a teenager. And yet somehow God had elevated him to this place of quite a a bit of, of, of influence in the court of Israel. And so we're going to pick up the story here in chapter 18, and we're going to see some of these principles that I want to share with you that we can adopt in our own lives if we're a leader. And everybody sitting here this morning is a leader in some context, right? So let's let's take a look. Chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan then became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now this is a powerful illustration of what I would call a very intimate friend. Some people have actually challenged this that say that maybe their relationship was was kind of strange, but it wasn't. I mean, in the Hebrew, it's talking about how there was such a camaraderie, such an intimate friendship between these two that whatever happened to either one of them, they almost experienced, almost like twins. And you'll notice here that what Jonathan did is he took his robe off, his tunic, and he gave him his sword in his belt and basically was saying, David, here, I recognize that you are anointed to be the next king. And because I respect you and because I love you, I recognize that and I give over my own authority to you. What an incredible act of friendship that David had in his life to have a Jonathan. And so the first principle I want you to see here in this particular passage is this. If you're a leader, everyone needs at least one intimate friend. We cannot go it alone. There needs to be somebody that has our back. There needs to be somebody in our life who's an encourager, somebody to love us unconditionally, someone to tell us the truth, someone to have our back when we're being attacked. Jonathan was that kind of person in David's life. 
In fact, you realize that later as Saul becomes more and more jealous and trying to kill David, Jonathan would stand in the gap. We see one illustration of that in chapter 19 where it says Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. He said, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. You see, Jonathan was even willing to betray his father because his friendship was so connected to David, and he saw the own, his evil in his own dad. Here was a, a young man that stood in the gap that was not threatened by David's success, Oscar Wilde writes this, anybody can sympathize with the sufferings of a friend, but it requires a very fine nature to sympathize with a friend's success. And here was Jonathan. It didn't matter. Jonathan was okay. He wanted to see David succeed in his life, and he did everything he could to have his back and to encourage him. My question to us this morning, do we have that person in our own life? Is there an intimate friend, somebody you can count on in thick and thin, that's going to tell you the truth and it's going to love you? Paul needed a Barnabas. We all need that in our lives. Are you trying to struggle in this life by yourself that say that you don't need anybody? And I'm talking about somebody beyond perhaps your spouse, but somebody in your life that can... can take care of you or encourage you when you're down and when things are going, not going your way and people are being critical of you. I'll never forget when I was being raked over the coals in my first church in a congregational meeting. And I remember one of my friends standing up who I had an influence on and who we were discipling. And he stood up and he said, pastors should not be treated this way. And it meant so much to me to know that Joe had my back at that particular time in my life, as lonely and as hard as it was. But I knew that I could count on Joe to tell me the truth. David had this in his life, and by golly, you're going to need it. If you're in leadership, it's a lonely place to be, right? And when you're a leader, you need that person in your life that's got your back and who's an encourager to you more than anything else. So who can you count on in your life? Have you got a name? Is there a person right now you can just spit out and say, yeah, that's it, boy, they're just the best. I'm so glad I have that in my life. But what's interesting here as we go on in this passage, you realize that David was just on a roll here. And so in verse 5, it says, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. We go on, it says, when the men are returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. I like this, what it says here, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully Over and over, you're reading about David who was successful because God was with him. That's principle number two when it comes to leadership. We must live out consistently obedient life in order to earn the respect of others. I mean, even though Saul was this angry, narcissistic, jealous king, David still did exactly what he was supposed to do because God was with him and he honored that authority in his life. What a reputation that David was leaving. 
What a legacy that he was creating in his life, that he was building. And my question to you is, what kind of legacy or consistency are you building in the people that you influence in your life today? As I was studying this particular passage, I just went online and started looking at some different things, and I discovered this place that calls Leaving a Legacy. And I saw that there were four major areas that we leave legacies in our life. And this morning, I want to share those four. And maybe you could do a little bit of analysis as to how well you're doing in terms of your own legacy of consistency and integrity that only God can give you. Here's the first one. Your legacy to your children and your grandchildren. Your family legacy. What are your kids and your grandkids saying about you? What will they say about you at your memorial service? What are the things they're going to glean from your life that they saw that was so consistent and so God-honoring and so successful that they look at that and say, wow, that's what I remember dad for. That's what I remember mom for. I remember one time with my own kids I was in a small group of guys and we were wondering, you know, what do you think our kids think about us? And I said, you know, that's that's an interesting thought. Maybe we should ask them. And so we all had an assignment and we all had to go home and sit down with our kids and say, son, daughter, what what do you think of us and how we have been actually uh, operating over the past several years? And so I remember our kids were probably I maybe what ten and thirteen or fourteen I can't remember they were probably close to teenagers. And we sat down in the living room and I had all these questions for them to give me a rating of an A B C D or F. It was pretty vulnerable. But it was, it's important for us to be vulnerable enough and transparent enough to know what kind of a legacy we're leaving. Here's the second thing, your body of work. Your body of work. What I mean by that is whatever God's called you to do vocationally, what kind of work productivity, what kind of ethicalness, what kind of of productivity, what kind of consistency are you effectively doing in your workplace? And what kind of a legacy are you leaving? In other words, what are people saying about you at work, those of you that are still working? What did they say about you if you're retired? Did they say that you were always on time, that you were trustworthy, that you were counted on, and they could always go to you and, and realize that you were the one that they could, they could know that was going to be the consistent one, the one that was always going to be ethical and moral in your approach? That's a part of your legacy. Thirdly, there's a, a legacy of what uh, some people have discovered called empowerment. This is really an interesting part. In other words, what have you done over your lifetime to empower and mentor others and give them the freedom to be all they can be? One of the things as husbands, we need to empower our wives to be all that they can be. Are we empowering our children and equipping them to empower all they can be? Who are you empowering in your life? I just got done focusing on that particular subject with a bunch of pastors over in California and in Arizona talking about how are you empowering people in your local church to serve God in in the way that God has gifted them uniquely. And we've discovered that we're doing a really lousy job of really giving people the opportunity to fail and to succeed by empowering them and kind of shoving them out of the nest. Who have you empowered in your life? What kind of a legacy of empowerment? Or are you sort of more of a control freak and you're a micromanager and you're not giving people the freedom to be what they need to be? The fourth element of legacy is your service. And what they mean by your service, it means what causes are you willing to die for? Is it a crisis pregnancy center? 
I know one of the things that I, a cause that I have are police officers, and that's been part of my life and my passion to really see police officers come to know Jesus. And that's a, one of my, hopefully, my legacy as part of my service. What is your service? What, what gets you up in the morning? What are you passionate about? And what kind of a legacy are you leaving for other people to see and follow and respect? Only why? Because of who God is in your life. So what kind of a legacy are you leaving? See, David was creating this legacy of a reputation of whatever he did, he did it faithfully and respectfully, even under an authority that was a jerk. Right? That was David. So that's the second principle I want to share with you this morning as far as being in leadership. But David had become so popular, you'll notice that something began to go awry. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul, and he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a boss that wanted to pin me to the wall, I'd probably skedaddle. But here's the point I want to make. Principle number three, no matter how hard you try, there are going to be people who will be critical of you if you're a leader, right? Leadership is a very difficult place to be. Leadership is where you make decisions. Leadership is where you're kind of the top of the pile, if you will, and the buck stops with you. And consequently, what happens in life is when you're a leader, there's always somebody out there that's going to take a shot at you, right? There's always somebody with a spear in hand that's going to throw a spear and try to nail you to the wall. It's life. It's all about leadership. That's what life is like. There's always somebody out there that's going to be critical of you. Now, the critical part of this is how do we respond to that? David seemed to respond pretty well, and yet we know that David had some issues as well emotionally because we read about him a lot in the Psalms. But I want to share with you there might be three ways that we can handle criticism this morning, and I want you to maybe jot these down or maybe they'll do a little self-analysis this morning. But the first way we often handle criticism is that we stuff it. Do you know anybody who's a stuffer this morning? You know, I was a stuffer for many years and still continue to wrestle with that because when criticism comes my way, I take it very seriously and I immediately think maybe I'm the mess or I'm the guy that's really messed up. And so I stuff it and I kind of, uh, kind of mull it over in my mind and I create some anxiety and I start worrying. And that's kind of the way I handled a lot of criticism for a lot of years. I'm doing better at it. But are you a stuffer this morning? Do you kind of repress those emotions when those criticisms come? You take it so seriously and it just kind of grinds on you and gets you down and gets you into a depressive spiral? But then there's a second kind of person who handles criticism, and I call them a stifler. A person who's a stifler is not terribly teachable and terribly approachable, and they, they're pretty pugnacious, and when criticism comes their way, they fight back and they get defensive. And you just seem they, they just can't be approachable, it seems like. They're, they're just always proud, and they're always trying to rationalize or come up with an argument. You know anybody like that? And you're saying, I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. I think you just stifled something. 
You see, a stifler is a person that oftentimes is a little bit more angry, a little bit more prideful and unapproachable. That's not the way to handle criticism either. So what's the third way? What's the right way? I call it being a good steward of criticism. Because there's a lot of ways that we can handle criticism, but one of the things we often need to do is we need to get to truth, because truth basically is the issue. And Scripture tells us in Philippians that we should fix our mind on things that are what? That are true. And so we need to intentionally look at the criticism and say, you know what? What's true about that? And what's false? And when we start praying about that and asking God to help us see that and to get alone with him, to help him kind of sift it through his truth, not our perceptions, not our emotions. And so as we sift through that, we can begin to see some light and we maybe say, well, maybe there's something about this that's actually a bit true. But on the other hand, there's other things here that aren't true about. I remember one time when I was accused of being this very dictatorial, autocratic, insensitive, heartless leader. And boy, I mean, there were some people that were pretty hard on me at a period of time in my ministry, and I, I would get alone with God and say, God, is this true about me? Am I really that bad? And, 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 and I began to sift through all that and realize, no, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's maybe this particular event maybe appeared to be that way, but it, that's not who I really am. And maybe I need to get some counsel, and so I got some counsel from people along the way. And some people who were able to speak truth to me and say, no, no, you're not. I mean, that's the furthest thing from who you are. And so I began to wrestle through that and pray through that and come to more of a balanced, logical conclusion based upon that criticism to say, well, I can see how they might, that might have appeared to be, and maybe I need to apologize for that, but I am not this. And so we walk through that like a good steward. And that's the way we need to deal with criticism. And I think uh, David had to struggle with this, obviously. And later on, next week, we're going to find out David's in a cave, really bummed out. And uh, so we're going to talk about cave dwelling next week, okay? So come back next week and you'll find out what life's like in a cave. But the point is, is that if you are a leader, this is what you're going to deal with. It's a given. And David had to deal with it. And we find out that David was struggling with it a lot, and David was probably more of a stuffer. And you'll realize when you start reading Psalms that a lot of his stuffing came out because a lot of his emotional baggage was kind of, he just kind of regurgitated out to the Lord and saying, God, this, this life is just horrible, and everybody's out to get me, and da-da-da-da-da. And so David was one of those guys that probably was more of a stuffer than anything else. But I want you to notice here that he still remained faithful in the process. Even in the criticism, David did everything he was asked to do. I love this about him. His integrity was at the very top. Let's move on here to principle number four. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Listen what it says. In everything he did, he had great success. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Everything he did. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. But David said to Saul, Who am I 
excuse me, verse 17. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So what was Saul doing? He, he was, there was a conspiracy here now to get rid of David, and Saul didn't want to personally take David out and assassinate him at this point. He realized that that would not be a very popular position. So let's just send David out into these more battles and see if we can get David killed, okay? That was his plan. But look at David's response. This is amazing. This is the same guy that tried to pin David to the wall twice with a spear. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel or Mahola. It was starting to backfire on Saul already, so he gives this woman to another man. However, now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Why? I'll give her to him. He thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Well, look what happens then. Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately, and say, look, the king is pleased with you, ha ha, and his attendants all like you, now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Are you kidding me? I I read this and I say, David, where are you at here? I mean, you got these women yelling, you've slain tens of thousands and you are successful in everything you do. And now you come across like I'm only this poor man and little known. But I love this about David. Why? Why? Because he understands, I think, this fourth principle of leadership. It's critical for one to maintain humility in the midst of great success. Success is some of the most dangerous thing that we can ever experience in our life. Amen? Success can really cause us to believe our own press. Success can bring us down faster than anything. But David was not allowing that to happen to him at this point in his life because he realized that it was all about God and not about him. And so he was still humbled by the thought that this king who was trying to kill him was offering his own daughter for marriage. And he counted it a great privilege. It's amazing to me how he maintained his humility throughout this whole time of great success. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen too often. I don't know if you read about it, but even just a month ago, there was a pastor down in Chandler of a large megachurch who just confessed to multiple affairs. And you see this happen constantly, time and time again, of people who have great success feel like that they're, they're, they're above God almost, and they can get away with anything they want, and their pride gets in the way. Good leaders understand what it means to maintain humility in the midst of all of that. You remember the secret of Joshua's success? The secret of Joshua's success was this, don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Don't ever let truth get out of your head and heart. 
And then he says, meditate on it day and night. Make it a part of who you are. And then be careful to do all that's in it. And then God will give you success. So it's all about relying completely on God and allowing him to be the success person in your life and not your own. Let's finish the story. When Saul's servants told him in verse 24 what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So he said, here, I I got this all figured out. You know, we're going to marry this, my daughter, to David, and the dowry will be, give me a hundred foreskins of Philistines. Pretty gross stuff, right? So what does he do? When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. He doubled it. Amazing. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. God was molding and shaping David into a godly leader. And yet David had a still difficult journey and pathway to what God had anointed him to be. It wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't like God just said, okay, David, you're going to be king, and tomorrow it's going to be handed to you on a silver platter. There was a lot that David needed to learn on his journey. And we know that there was still a lot for for David to go through. And we're going to find him from the pinnacle of success to absolutely alone in a cave. And so we're going to talk about that again next week. But let me just conclude by asking you these questions. Is there somebody in your life that can speak truth with grace in your life? Do you have somebody in your corner who will always have your back? Is there somebody? Does their name just kind of flip off your tongue right now and say, yeah, I, yeah, I know that person that John or that Mary or that person in my life that I know that I can count on when I need help, when I need encouragement, when I need somebody to have my back, they're there for me. Because there is going to be a time in your life where you're going to absolutely need it because leadership, no matter what it looks like, can get pretty lonely and we need somebody in our life to do that. Here's the second question. Have you garnished the respect of those around you because of the integrity and consistency of your walk with God. And if you don't know that, why don't you ask? Why don't you ask? That was a a crazy thing back then when I was talking to my kids. That was kind of a vulnerable thing. You know, do I really want my young kids, my teenagers, to tell me the truth about how well I'm doing as a dad? It wouldn't hurt to ask. You know why? Because that's a part of our legacy of what? Of empowerment. And I'm not saying that our kids should be disrespectful, but my point is we need to feel empowered and we need to be empowering people under us. Thirdly, how are you handling criticism in your life? What's your default position? Stifling? 
Are you a stuffer or are you a steward? And then finally, maybe for some of you right now, life is just really good. And you're enjoying a lot of success. You feel blessed. You feel just like you know, things are going really well. And I want to encourage you. Remember where that's coming from. It's not about you. The reason why David was successful is because why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And God was with him. And so wherever he went, he was faithful and obedient to what God wanted him to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this guy, this young guy. You know, it's amazing to me that this teenager had so much maturity. But we know that he was a young man who was after your heart. God, help us to be men and women after your heart. And I pray for maybe somebody right now who's feeling a little bit lonely, just gone through some very critical times, that you would just let them know how much you love them, and may they sift through it in a way as a steward, not as a stifler or as a stuffer. God, I pray that we would be willing to take some risks, perhaps, and to think through our legacy. What are we leaving? What are we communicating? And God, bring us up short if you need to. Remind us of who you are. So thank you for these truths today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.